it, you don't have to be the chief executive to be affecting the system. Anyone from anywhere in the system can affect the system. We see that all over the world right now. And so the possibility that I am a culture maker is always alive for each of us in any organization. Hello and welcome to The Messy Middle. I'm your host, Andrew Horsfield. This podcast is designed for astute leaders like you, seeking something deeper than a soundbite, a quick fix, or a simple five-step process. The purpose of this podcast is to have conversations with leaders and experts in their field who can help you elevate your impact as you advance your career, company, and life. You can find out more or listen to previous episodes at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. Being a leader in the modern world of work is difficult. The pace is fast and the expectations for results is pretty relentless, which is made even more difficult in a global setting that's complex, challenging and constantly changing. My guest today, Jennifer Garvey-Berger, believes that we need to develop more sophisticated leaders who can better handle this complexity and we need to develop them quickly. Jennifer is the author of four brilliant books and a partner at Cultivating Leadership, where she uses her considerable expertise to help leaders and organisations thrive in complexity. In this conversation, we talk about how we can prepare for a future we can't predict and the mental traps that we can fall into when managing complexity. We also explore the role of curiosity in complexity, as well as actionable advice for leaders working in difficult or demanding contexts. This is a fascinating conversation with deeply insightful and accessible wisdom. Please enjoy this conversation with leadership and complexity expert, Jennifer Garvey-Berger. Jennifer, welcome to The Messy Middle. It's great to have you because I've actually heard you on a number of other podcasts that I listen to and whenever I hear you, I always have things to think about, find the conversation compelling. So I hope I can emulate that in this conversation. But the starting point for me is just, it's super exciting to have you on. So welcome and I'm really looking forward to the conversation with you. Thanks. I'm really looking forward to it too. Tell me before we jump into probably the the topic of our conversation around leadership and complexity and how leaders manage this modern world of work that we're in, I referenced a little bit in our pre-conversation about a beautiful email I'd received from you about um, you're out of office and taking a little bit of a sabbatical. and, And I think it's a really interesting time where it's not a common thing for leaders to do to take this time out. And I'm just would love you to talk about, you know, what you're doing and how you made that decision to take a bit of time for yourself. You know, like so many things, it started with grand hopes. I just have a book coming out. I thought the book was going to come out in September, October. It actually came out last week. So that was a surprise to me. We've moved to France. We live in the French countryside. We we bought a house with a big, a big property with 10 friends and work colleagues and we live and work together in community. And so I had this idea that I should I should do this thing. I've just written a book about resetting your nervous system. I thought I should do that. And then that idea as ideas do that morphed into, you know what? I should also really devote myself to learning French. But the idea is that we need space. Mm-hmm. 
right? Space to do whatever the thing is we need to do. Uh, complexity requires space. And we are living in such an extraordinarily complex time. And if we cram it and don't leave ourselves any slack, we don't do well. We don't have good ideas. Uh, we don't have good connections. And we also don't do well in our bodies. So this is my attempt to practice a little bit of what I'm preaching. Yeah, which was a question I was going to ask you later, but it's so relevant now. You are an absolute expert in the area of complexity, but personally, you still seem to be curious and testing that theory and putting yourself into positions for yourself. It's not a skill I think most experts balance particularly well. How do you balance that? And why is it important to you to keep testing and practicing what you preach? Maybe I'm just really lucky about what field I'm in. Because if you're in the complexity field and you aren't curious, you're a little bit offsides, right? For me, I got into this idea of inner and outer complexity. What is the world demanding of us and how do we grow better able to handle that? I got on into that when it looked like a very niche, very weird topic to study. Uh, and, you know, I, I started studying this about 25 years ago when nobody could care less about this set of ideas, right? And now it's super hot. Um, and now everybody cares about how do we handle this hugely complex world that we're in. Uh, but I got into it because I love it. I, I find it endlessly interesting. I find humans and their adaptation to the world endlessly interesting. And so I, I feel very lucky at my course of study. Um, and, and I do, you know, like we really did push the edges of the envelope in the, in the way we run our organization, cultivating leadership in the way We've just reorganized that in a in a surprising and complexity friendly way. I think the ideas I work with have utterly changed my life and they continue to change my life. And that's pretty good. Tell us, uh, like, what's your definition of complexity in terms of the way that you you talk about it in your work? Yeah. So the. The way I think about complexity is there are two kinds of systems, right? There are kind of predictable systems where the thing that happened yesterday, you can be pretty sure it'll happen the same way tomorrow. If you, if you do the same things, you'll get the same results uh, because things are linear, ordered, predictable. Complexity is a whole different beast. Complexity is when there are so many different uh, intersecting parts and those intersecting parts uh, affect each other so that you can't know in this kind of entangled, messy space, you can't know what's going to happen. If, if I did this thing yesterday and I got one result, I could do it tomorrow and get a completely different result. And in this world of unpredictable, entangled, um, confusing cause and effect, we actually just have to show up in a really different way because our bodies tend to believe that what happened to us in the past will happen to us in the future. And if we rely on that sense, um, we're always going to be surprised and unsettled by an, a, a future that unfolds differently. And that sort of works counterintuitively to 
our neurology and doesn't it in in the sense that it doesn't serve the pattern making machine that we want to have can you tell us a bit about that and what your views are around how do we predict and be better for the future when our brain and the way we're wired is wanting something completely different yeah it's fascinating so the book i wrote before this most recent one is about uh, how we fall into these traps I call them mind traps, but how we fall into these traps is we're working in complexity for exactly this reason. As I started to research these kind of weird patterns my clients were having of knowing that they should do one thing and then doing exactly the opposite. I was trying to figure this out. Uh, And it turns out, as you say, our bodies are prediction machines, right? Like our emotions are predictive. Our nervous system is predictive. We're constantly guessing at what's going to happen in the next moment, in the next day, in the next month, constantly putting the past in front of us into the future. And for most of human history, that's been a really good idea. A berry that was poisonous yesterday is going to be poisonous tomorrow. An animal that was food last week is going to be food in two weeks. You know, like these things were very helpful. Now it's not very helpful. And so understanding the way our body can kind of get in the way of our ability to be creative, to be connected, to be rested in a time of such extraordinary complexity has been really helpful. What did you find with some of those common traps? Where do we, does our mind conspire against us in this, in this battle with complexity? Yeah. Our, so one of the things our, our, our mind is doing super well all the time is limiting the amount of information we have access to so that we can act quickly right? This makes a ton of sense. We can't handle it all. And so we've got to limit it. So our, our mind is always kind of patting us on the back and saying, there, there, you poor child. Don't look at that. Don't look at that. Don't look at that. Just pay attention to this. And in a world that's kind of messy, uh, like the natural world, which is messy, but has predictable patterns, um, that's been super helpful. In a world like a meeting, right, or looking at market conditions, this is not helpful at all. So these kind of patterns of our mind uh, distracting us from the complexity around us lead to things like we have this general sense that we're right. I call it trapped by rightness with this general sense that we're right. Certainty is an emotion that arises in the brain. It arises and then we tell a story about it. We get trapped by these stories. I call them simple stories. Our brain makes really simple stories with cause and effect, tightly coupled with heroes and villains. And once we begin to see those stories, we can't see the complexity of other kind of things that we might think of as noise or exceptions there. The third way we get trapped is we get trapped by our desire to uh, control things, to put our hands on them, to make them happen in particular ways. In complexity, you can't put your hands on things and make them happen. You can create the conditions for good things to happen, and then you can nudge and experiment your way through, but you can't actually force anything to happen in a complex world because there are too many parts. The fourth one is we get uh, we get really humans because we are social primates. Uh, we we do much better 
and over the course of human history, we've needed to live in tribes and collectives. Uh, so we are wired to get along with some folks and polarize against other folks. And you see this in our brain chemistry where when you and I sit down for the first time and we're trying to suss each other out, when we stumble upon something that feels like something we agree upon, we both get a hit of dopamine that feels pleasurable. And in a brain scan, if you and I were to begin to disagree, it would show up in the brain scan as pain. You can't tell the difference in a brain scan between physical pain and social pain. The brain thinks they're the same. And so, um, and so that creates a whole series of traps in our social world. Uh, and, and then the final one is we get trapped by our own egos, right? We get trapped by who we are, how we are producing ourselves for ourselves and for the world, and our desire to kind of not, not rock that either, uh, to, to stay the same. And, uh, and that forms maybe the trappiest trap of them all. Yeah, particularly in, a, in the modern world that we live in, right, where it's so prevalent and easy for us to make those comparisons and and present and polish a certain version of ourselves all the time. I think that sense of control is is such a, a big one for, for many people, not only in their work life, but in how we manage relationships and how we drive to work in or commute to work and the expectations we have and all those things that are entangling that. What role does curiosity play in being able to to lighten the load? Or are there other things that we can do to help move away from controlling the circumstance to, I think you mentioned about more of the process and the, the environment. And you just pointed to two of the keys, right? One of the keys is curiosity, uh, living in a place of wonder, wondering, learning, just opens up an entirely different set of responses for us. And the other thing you pointed to is how can we loosen our grip on the outcome? This is maybe one of the most useful ideas to remember in complexity is that when you have a grip on the outcome or you narrow your focus to be after one particular thing, you're almost always in the wrong place in a complex world. Because complexity is about directionality and how can I create the conditions to move in a particular direction while also scanning for what's going on right now so that I can be adaptive to that thing. And so, you know, one of the practices is just trying to figure out, am I really attached to an outcome here? And how could I loosen my grip and get curious about what else is possible and what the, you know, the 10,000 possible ways I could have a great thing happen that isn't my particular vision from this point to what I imagine would make me happy or would make me successful or would make this product launch most effective or whatever that might be. Yeah. And do you find in your experience that many leaders are, are just really replicating their own experience, but trying to do it cheaper, faster, leaner, and not necessarily have that agility to, to look outside of what worked for them? I mean, right now, especially. So yes, I believe that this is generally true. And right now it's kind of truer than it's been because people are working so hard. The, the hybrid world has confused us enough that we are just doing more and feeling less 
uh, good about it. And all the things that are up mean that a lot of the folks I work with are doubling down and doubling down again and doubling down again, uh, working themselves Mm -hmm. to the bone, trying to do as much as they've ever done harder, better, as opposed to saying, this is not working. I need a new way. What are some ways that people could start to look at um, whether they're getting caught in these mind traps? Are there certain things that people could be looking for? I presume that's the first step. If you can't see that you're in one, then it's very hard to change it. So um, are there certain things that you could point people to that might help them start to diagnose a little bit or self-diagnose that they might be in one of the mind traps? So the first thing is knowing about them is helpful and then choosing one that you think is your trappiest trap right now is a useful way to narrow. Often other people around you know this a little bit better than you do. So one of the big surprises for me about the Mind Traps books is how teams are using it really effectively to start a new conversation among them and to be able to signal to each other, oh, you're doing that thing again. And because these are natural human responses, they're not embarrassing. They're not personality flaws. They're not like you screwing up in some way. We can say, oh yeah, you're getting trapped by that thing you get trapped by. Um, but let's see if we can climb out of that. And people can give each other feedback. It's it's very, very often easier to see somebody in a trap than yourself in a trap. Yeah. Can you just share a little bit more about what teams are doing to, to signal that? Because that whole psychological safety and I'd never do that or I don't want to throw some under the bus or those sort of common types of responses to people stepping into that generous but often courageous act to give people some honest feedback is is very difficult for, for most people. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what the teams are setting up or doing. Yeah, so as you and I both know, true psychological safety comes when you have deep honesty with one another, right? When you are able to give each other really clear and helpful feedback, even if it feels uncomfortable in the moment, the the thing that the mind traps often do is they make people laugh, right? I was working with a team not too long ago, an executive team, and uh, and the chief executive had a, a kind of, reputation for always believing she was right. Right. And, um, and people didn't talk about it because one doesn't talk about that with the chief executive, you know, it was kind of like, but you can't go into her office because you can't go in with a new idea because she always thinks she's right. You know, and there was a kind of a dampening effect as you can imagine on the organization when we got to talking about the mind traps and what was the trappiest trap. She was like, oh, mine is absolutely rightness. I get so trapped in rightness. I don't know if you people have noticed. And the room just burst into laughter, right? (laughs) It was like, now it's a thing we can joke about. Now it's a thing we know she knows. Mm. She knows we know. And then she could say to the team, I really want to know if this is getting in the way. I see now how it's a trap. I really want to know if it's getting in the way. I want you to tell me. And one of the questions I suggest in in getting out of the rightness trap is this question of how could I be wrong? She said, I want you to ask me that question much more often. I, I really want that question to be more top of mind. And 
And, you know, there were others in the room who had a control thing and there were others in the room who had an agreement thing. And and as they were talking about it, they could see, oh, this mind trap in many circumstances adds goodness. Like it's very useful when your chief executive has a sense of direction, believes she's right, like charges mm-hmm. ahead. That's very helpful. And it also, particularly when things are quite complex, it gets in the way. Very useful. Am I on the right side or the wrong side of that question right now? And can you help me with it? It got me thinking as you were talking then about cultures and environments and how they help or hinder that process and wondering, are there environments or cultures or or professions who you've noticed have better skills in this area just because of the nature of the environment they're working in or the, the role they're doing against the environments that are more stable or, or structured? Yes, I think... I think those folks who are used to dealing with a world that's rapidly changing, they take to these ideas faster and kind of can play with them uh, more easily than folks who are used to an industry or an organization that kind of marches or has traditionally marched one foot after the other. So I, I was introducing these ideas to a, a leadership team of a, a financial, a big financial startup in China. China is a world of complexity. FinTechs are complex organizations. These people were mostly tech leaders before this. They were in this incredibly rapidly changing agile organization. You could tell this was their ocean right? This is what they were swimming in. Now, it was very helpful for them to have distinctions, right? And then they started using the distinctions and talking very animatedly in um, Chinese, so harder for me to access, but very animatedly amongst one another about how to use the ideas going forward. But you take that with professions that have been, like, say, in the insurance industry. Insurance is really interesting. In the insurance industry, people have been predicting this is their whole job is predicting what's going to happen in the future and making bets, right? This is how insurance works. Uh, And yet with the world so unpredictable, they know they can't be making the same kind of bets. And so there they've been kind of at the forefront of changing a business model from something that needed to be incredibly clear about when the past was going to be like the future uh, with actuary tables and such so in different industries and different organizations, it's a it's kind of a steeper hill to climb. In your book, The Simple Habits for Complex Times, one of the things that I, I really loved that you talk about is seeing in systems. I think it's a it's a like a superpower for a modern day leader. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I find it really fascinating as a concept. It is. I I completely agree with you that it's like a superpower. Uh, and it's, the good news is it's trainable. The bad news is almost nobody has it automatically. The human brain, uh, pulls things apart, categorizes, separates, puts things in their boxes. And so because of that, it's very hard to see inter interdependence. It's very hard to see things at the edges of the system because we've defined the boundaries in this way. And so once again, it's about noticing what the patterns are of our habitual thinking and stretching them a little. Understanding that in a system, the connections between things are more important than the things themselves. 
And so knowing who your top talent is, is one thing in an organization, but knowing how your top talent are connected through the organization is often a more important question, but harder to figure out, harder to research, all these things. Could you share a little bit more about that interconnectedness with the, what you mean in with that talent in the example, the talent talking to each other and how they're connecting, not just who they are and what they're doing? Yeah. So if you imagine an organization where you have a really awesome talent identification plan, and as many organizations do, you put all those people on a board, you um, reward them in particular ways, you might give them extra services in particular ways. If those top talent feel isolated in your organization, they feel unconnected, they don't feel seen or supported, they don't have a strong network, they'll go, right? And you can reward them. What we know now for sure is they'll go. Mm -hmm. So, So looking at the web in which they sit, how are they connected? How are they adding value? How is their purpose connected to the purpose of the organization? All of these connections to one another, to the work, to purpose, to their communities, all of these things add up to something that's much more important for you as a, as a leader of a team or an organization than this individual person, how this individual person is doing. How much responsibility do you see in terms of who owns that making those connections? Is that an organization responsibility? Is it a shared responsibility? Does it have a particular percentage in your mind about who owns that process of forming and building those connections? I think the point of an organization is to create the culture where these things are possible and even more and more likely. So I lead an organization of about 80 people and we are constantly looking at how do we create the conditions for people to feel more connected to each other, more connected to the work, more connected to their purpose. And what do we need to tinker with to make that more likely? Now, Once we've kind of done our job looking at what's happening and creating the conditions for good things to happen, whether people step into that or not, that's on them, right? But a ton of organizations actually create the conditions for people to be smaller, more anxious, more defended, less creative, less connected in their policies, right? not just in their culture, but actually in their policies, they create these conditions. And we have got to stop creating organizations where people are spending most of their generative adult hours that make people less capable than they were before they walked in. Yeah. I love that invitation that you're giving people or endorsing to be part of the culture that they create. Not not just a visitor there or a clock in or clock off, but there's a there's a responsibility there to to be part of that creative process. Yeah, each of us is in that, right? Each of us, complexity tells us that wherever you are in a system, you can affect the system. It, you don't have to be the chief executive to be affecting the system. Anyone from anywhere in the system can affect the system. We see that all over the world right now. And so the possibility that I am a culture maker is always alive for each of us in any organization. And one of the things I wanted to ask, because I'm, I'm noticing that there's a lot of 
questions that seem to guide your direction, you know, the book you're writing or the culture you want to create. Is is that a technique that's purposeful in relation to complexity because it creates a direction but an openness for people to work out how you get there? Yeah, that's exactly right. Kind of knowing where like you want to go that way. You think these ideas are important and whether they are guided by your values or your purpose or whatever, whatever is your North star, um, your Southern cross, uh, figure, figuring out, um, what that is and then loosely arranging yourself so that you can watch for the patterns that emerge and then coaxing those patterns into existence. Instead of trying to control it and say, these are the patterns say, Oh, this good thing is happening over here. How can we amplify that? oh, this not so good thing is happening over here. What could we do to make that less likely? How, how do we watch and nudge our way through and create something amazing? Um, this is extraordinary, right? This is, a, this is a way to think about your, your family. This is a way to think about your partnerships, your friendships, your rugby club, like whatever it might be, and your organization's. We get so bogged down, I think, as as leaders, and I don't just mean that in an org chart somewhere, but our leaders of our family, of our social network, as an influence with other people that we spend time with. It's such an opportunity to do great things and have an impact that we get caught up in that detail and pleasing people and having a deal of if we do this sort of work and produce this sort of outcome, we'll get paid and protected in the organization somewhere where really what we need is people making those connections, as you're saying, and seeing the the cause and effect of things as opposed to just the output, which is a challenge in itself for many leaders. So I'm wondering, you know, if hypothetically, you know, I, I obviously have my own business, but it's just myself as a practice. But if I have an organization and I've got 50 to 100 people in that organization and I want to engage you to come and and build this this capability in leaders, and I pay you handsomely to come for you know a month or six weeks to do that. What what are you looking for when you go in to make that assessment and build that capability in leaders? Is it a certain metric? Is it a certain um, set of values that you can see being lived in the organisation? What, what would you be looking for and and looking to move or shift? It's funny the the first big leadership program we ever did as cultivating leadership was just starting. There were just four of us, right? We were, we were doing this big leadership program and we weren't quite sure about the answer to your question, which is a great question. And I'm still figuring it out, right? Like these many years later, um, the, we were, we were running, a a program for leaders to handle complexity in a different role in a New Zealand government organization. And the chief executive came to us after the first couple of cohorts. And uh, he said, you know, what's funny. He said, I, I thought I would be able to pick out the people in your program who had been through your program because they would be like, better spoken or like stronger, or they would have like clearer ideas. He said, actually, uh, when we have an all hands, we're all five or 600 people in our organization 
gather together in a giant room and we talk to each other. I can tell who's been on your program by the quality of the questions they ask and by the quality of the listening they do to others as others are having ideas. And that has not only stuck with me, but actually I think is an incredibly useful metric right? What kind of questions are we asking and how are people feeling and um, being heard by each other? So you can, you can look at it in engagement. You could look at it in measures of belonging. You could look at it in measures of innovation, but ultimately I think it comes down to how curious are we? How well are we engaging with a sense of deep curiosity and innovation? And then how well are we including diverse, disparate perspectives in ours in a way that shake me out of who I have been and the ideas I have had so that we are creating something bigger than any one of us could create? It's such a great answer. It, it's I've got a vision in my head about like improvisation, where the, the characters on that stage trying to amplify each other as opposed to direct the storyline and you need that mental flexibility to shift and change and and move it, it's a it's a lovely challenge for people listening to do more of that as they go about their day tomorrow the next day or the day after that are there particular things you change in in the way we approach leadership development which i think is is more about the known and the certainty and the take charge and um you've got to know what's going on you need to be able to give a great answer to the boss as soon as I ask it to, to do more of what you're suggesting. I'm, I'm wondering what you would see that might be missing or what people could be thinking about for either those running learning and development programs or people attending them to say, hey, this is what I need to turn up to, to keep developing beyond just the, the, um, the program that's being delivered. Yeah. So this is a really important point is how, how do how do leadership development programs and leadership development experiences give people the capacity to continue developing forever? Right. So this is, you know, the, this, this book I wrote with my friend and colleague, Keith Johnston, who is one of the 11 who live and work in this house, um, as is Carolyn, uh, the, this, this question of how do we, not just develop, but actually engage our developmental engine so that our workplaces become growth places. Uh, and how can we offer leadership programs that help people uh, re-metabolize what's going on? So if we teach leaders, you know, these models to be crisp and certain and clear, we're sort of reinforcing all this stuff about predicting, controlling. Um, if we teach leaders how to take surprise, uncertainty, complexity, uh, and do something useful with them, uh, and help other people do something useful with them, then actually the world provides the developmental juice. Right? The, there's always developmental juice, whether we are parents or playing a sport or walking through a crowded city street or walking through a forest, right? Like there's always developmental juice everywhere we go. It's just, we've mostly learned how to ignore it because it's unsettling. 
So how do we re-engage the, the childlike wonder of learning, play, innovation? And then we can continue that path forever. The old people you know who are most uh, vibrant are the ones who have never gotten off that path or who got back on that path. This is how we want to live our whole lives. And a leadership program can offer leaders a way to transform the messages that they have been given and that they now give about having things under control, making them perfect, never getting anything wrong, just impossible now, into opportunities for learning, connection, innovation, and play. Yeah. And noticing, isn't it? I think that it's it's noticing that learning juice, as you call it. I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. You mentioned about there's also positive news in your new book, which we'll, we'll obviously put some show notes to with, with the other books that you've written. And, and I highly recommend all of them because I think apart from a theoretical perspective, they offer some practical solutions for people to think about and deeply engage in without a bite-sized solution that people then who want to read and, and apply things to their own life want more depth than that. So they're terrific reads. Um, thank you for writing them. What's the good news? What's some of the, the things that we should be looking forward to? Yeah. So the new book is called Unleash Your Complexity Genius. And the, the question it engages is, so actually humans have been living in complex spaces always. And most of the most of the great stories we have of humanity are of people thriving, innovating, creating in these unknown circumstances uh, and working together in collectives to be able to to do this. So Carolyn and I started to play around with what is in us that is fabulous that that we are well resourced for. And uh, a lot of those things we've been talking about right here, right? Like you just mentioned noticing. It's the first genius in the book. Humans can actually Mm. notice what's going on. They can pay attention. They can choose to devote their attention to a particular thing. They they aren't just, I, I watch my dog, right? She notices, you know, squirrels or whatever it is she might notice, right? She doesn't, she doesn't think I'm going to notice a squirrel now. This is her attention is grabbed. Humans have the capacity for their attention to be grabbed, but we also can intentionally direct our attention and notice things on purpose. This is genius, right? This this makes every new thing possible. So we have these things in us. We have our breath, which is another amazing genius. We can actually transform our nervous system by the way we breathe. We can learn from our breath, how our nervous system is behaving, and then we can change it by the way we breathe. It's extraordinary. And again, this is a thing that happens automatically and we can make it happen on purpose. And then some of the other ones that are uh, tricky and yet the cornerstones of a life well-lived are things we've also been talking about, wondering, Mm. the deep curiosity of life, experimenting. How can we have a sense of play and curiosity as we navigate and really don't know what's going to happen next? And we close with this, um, with this idea of loving. How can we create the spaces and the conditions for ourselves 
to experience and offer more love to the world. And in our organizations, in our families, in our friendships, everywhere we go. And, and how do we begin to understand that love, like these other geniuses, doesn't just arise. It is a thing we can create the conditions for more of. And it's a thing that we can open ourselves to more of the time. So we have more access to it. We provide more of it. And though, and I think the world changes. So these, these geniuses are about taking things that happen to us automatically and creating the conditions for them to happen on purpose. If people are listening and it's resonating for them, is there anything in particular in your experience that you would suggest people start with as a way of entering into more of a, an aware space, uh, aware of self-awareness of their own mind traps or being more curious or looking at complexity in a different way as a, just a starting point? Well, like most complex things, I think that there are a million starting points. In our organization, we try to provide as many starting points as possible. As you know, these ideas change lives. They've changed my life. They, um, they've changed the lives of all the people in my organization and, you know, the many thousands, tens of thousands of people with whom we've worked in some way. Uh, so we have a ton of resources on our website. We have, you know, I've written four books. Um, other people in my firm have written other books. Uh, we have a ton of stuff on YouTube. Uh, I would say whatever, um, whatever modality is most helpful for you, whether it's a conversation with a friend, have a conversation with a friend about complexity and who you are and maybe something that could grab you. Uh, one of the questions I love is a question about what has surprised you today. Surprise is really tightly connected to creativity, but it can be um, augmented, right? We can develop the capacity for more surprise. Uh, laugh more. Uh, loosen up your nervous system. And really pay attention to the ways uh, you are exhausted and overpressed and without space because we cannot handle complexity well with no slack. We cannot handle complexity well when our nervous system is so stressed out we can't let in another thing. So put on your own air mask first and then assist others. Yeah, brilliant. Look, it's a lovely place probably for us to wrap up, Jennifer. Thank you so much for your generosity of your time and wisdom. Um, it's been terrific to listen to you and um, and get a better handle on so many positive things that people can do to enrich their, their lives, let alone the performance that, that we spend a lot of time trying to achieve in a formal work setting. So thank you so much. It's been just brilliant, really great. Thanks. It's been a delightful conversation here on my on my holiday. It's lovely to hang out and have a great conversation with you. Thanks so much for your, your questions and your thoughts. Just a couple of things before we wrap up. If you've enjoyed this episode and think it'll be good company for your drive home, commute on the train, or even mental fuel during your daily workout, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me 
with insider content, videos, white papers, and some recommended reading that will help you move your mental furniture around advancing people and performance, then sign up for more content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash contact. Thanks for listening.